So, last year, I was in the middle of releasing a limited documentary series called The Order of Death, and I didn't get to do a Halloween episode, which was a huge bummer to me as making these things has become one of my favorite things to do. But there's no reason to fret this year, we've made another one. And the two stories in this episode are, are kind of two of my favorite things we've done for a while, so you're not going to get a huge long introduction from me this week. I'm just going to get out of the way and play the hits, as they used to say. We'll start with a story from artist and illustrator Corey Redford. I came upon this piece in the last issue of Suspect Press and I loved it. It's worth seeking out for the art alone. But this piece also struck me as a very Halloween flavored tale, so I got a hold of Corey to see if she'd want to record it. And lucky for me, and for you, she did. So, without further ado, here's Corey Redford and her piece, Deviations. A walking tour of Civic Center Park. Begin your tour at the State Capitol Building. Before you is the Colorado State Capitol Building. Its dome is covered in real gold leaf. Shortly after it was built, people noticed that after a rainstorm or snowmelt, the gold dust glittered in the gutters. This led to panning for gold around the building. The city put a stop to that by installing machine gun batteries on the roof. They're generally only manned during festivals or holidays, but it's advised that you not break the law within sight of the building. Leading to the main entrance, you'll see three different marks on three different steps. One of them marks exactly one mile above sea level. The other two are decoys. If you want to perform any scientific experiment or dark ritual that would require you to be exactly one mile above sea level, you'll either have to do it three times or do your own calculation of where sea level is. The city of Denver will not be complicit in either your science or your religion. Beneath the building are the coal tunnels. The coal tunnels used to house a system of mine carts which took coal to the Capitol building as well as some mansions around town. The advent of electricity and gas boilers made the system obsolete. The tunnels are now home to a variety of Things. Enter the building. The Alma entrance is tiled with a rare type of marble only found in the Alma mine in Alma, Colorado. The mine was depleted to provide marble for this building, thus making it even more rare and valuable. If you look closely, you'll see marks where thieves have tried to take samples for private collections, but were themselves removed by security. Look closely but don't touch. Continue on to the Hall of Justice, also known as the Denver County Courthouse. The courthouse is where most of the legal proceedings of Denver take place. In the winter, the building is lit with colorful holiday lights and decorations. 
Beneath the four floors of courtrooms and the basement of sub-records, there are four sub-basements. These house prisoners. Some are there waiting for trial. Some have been sent there for contempt of court. Some are there because the city does not know what to do with them. They have been waiting for a very long time. The city's grown older around them, but they do not age. The guards are afraid of them. The guards have long since stopped bringing them food, but somehow these prisoners do not wither. They do not die. They wait. The guards who spend too much time with their whispers are changed. Their eyes are haunted. They awake in the night, gasping, sweating, dirt on their hands and feet. Where have they been? What have they done? They wash, they scrub, they let the hot shower become their river lathe, and in the morning allow themselves to think it was a dream. And anyway, it was only dirt, wasn't it? They scrub their showers with bleach, and they ask for transfers from sub-basement duty. If you see a tired, hollow-eyed guard smoking behind the courthouse, they will not hold your gaze. They don't need to see your pity. Do not enter the courthouse. Continue on to the Denver Art Museum, the North Building. The North Building was designed by Italian architect Gio Ponti. It opened in 1971. However, it bears a striking resemblance to a burning castle in a painting from 1471 by a student of Hieronymus Bosch. In the foreground, absurd figures perform the seven deadly sins in graphic fashion. In the background, a castle burns and tiny figures can be seen leaping from its ramparts to their inevitable death. Sometimes the painting is displayed in the European collection. Sometimes a guard will point it out to you and comment on the resemblance between the building and the painting and the building you are in. Don't take anything the guard offers you. Do not look directly into his eyes. Do not take conscious note of his Italian accent or name tag. Do not mention the Masons or Illuminati. Do not look closely at the painting where the signature says Ponti. Just leave now. Continue to the Hamilton Building. The Hamilton Building was designed by Liebskind. Take a quick moment to admire its angles and reflections. What you really want to see is inside. Go inside. Beside the elevator bank is a set of stairs. Go down, past the coat racks, past the theater, past the scale models of the yellow sculpture you've seen from the highway. Now go down the next flight, left down the hall, open the door marked janitorial. It's cooler than in the hall. The walls appear to be made of cinder block. Close the door behind you. You weren't followed, were you? If so, wait for the footsteps to fade. Flick off the light. See the faint glow on the wall opposite the door? Press on the third brick from the bottom. The wall swings towards you. Step back. Don't trip on that mop. A damp wave of cool air blows across your face. Step forward. Turn on your flashlight. You're now in the minecart tunnels. Note the eroded brick. See how the ceiling is high and arched? The rails stretch out to the left and right. Follow the tracks to the right. This is north. You're walking between the rails, careful not to trip on the ties. You pass a switch-off that leads into the yawning darkness. The silence presses around you. You hear your heart beating hard in your ears. You realize that you don't hear your breath because you're holding it. You take a few deep breaths, and then you feel dizzy as you don't remember what a normal breathing pattern is. You laugh at yourself, and your laugh echoes down the tunnel 
coming back to you distorted and disturbing. Your breathing is shallow now and quiet. Your steps are muted and hollow against the soft, dusty wooden ties. Your eyes have adjusted to the dark, so much so that you can't look directly at the beam of the flashlight. It's too bright. You almost feel that if you turned it off, you could see in the dark. You try it. The afterimage of the scene wavers before you in the dark. You reach your hand out and the illusion is broken. It was only a retinal echo. The darkness and silence close around you. You try to turn your flashlight on, but now it doesn't work. You flick the switch several times fruitlessly. There's a sound behind you. You charge forward in a panic. You trip on a rail and fall, scraping your palms. You stand up. You don't know which way you're facing now, but you run into the darkness, hands outstretched, lest you run headlong into a wall, hoping to run into a wall so you can follow a path out. But the earth beneath your feet is soft now, and no wall presents itself. You run, and you run, and you run, and you run, and your footsteps are lost in empty air. No echoes now. Something is grabbing at your shirt from behind, almost catching you, and the dark is so impenetrable that you start to wonder if you're actually moving or if you're on a treadmill, but you can't stop because it's right behind you. You run until your breath gives out and you trip on nothing and fall to the ground. It's soft and yielding and damp, and now they have you. I put a spell on you. Deviations was recorded and engineered by Emily Redford. Corey Redford is an artist and has lived in Denver for 30 years. Her work can be seen in Suspect Press, History Colorado, and at coloradosun.com in the weekly comic What I Miss, written by R. Allen Brooks. She knows many more secrets about Denver. So many more. Now, I've known the author of this next piece for over 20 years, What seems like a long time doesn't feel like a long time, because time is a funny thing. Anyway, he and I and a third friend of ours have a kind of a bad movie club. Put simply, every week we get together and we watch a bad movie. And this is one of the things that keeps me sane during this particular stage of our history. His piece doesn't have anything to do with that, really. I just thought I'd mention it. As it turns out, Andrew Watson is also a great writer. And when I put out the call for spooky stories... He sent this in. It's called The Ghosts That Live Within Me. The Ghosts That Live Within Me. In the winter of 1995, I saw a ghost. Two of them, in fact. I also felt the presence of a third. And I was not the only one who encountered these apparitions. These days, I'm a guarded academic, but back then... I was a foolish teenage boy who left himself exposed to all kinds of horrors. But before I get into all of that, I have to put things into context. I need you to hear me out. My best friend's boyfriend, Jake, had invited us to spend the night. He was living, not entirely legally, in a former Catholic high school that had been converted into artist studios. The old Spanish building at the corner of 19th and Grant in Denver still had the melancholy charm of a school with its brown checkerboard tiles and preponderance of announcement boards, and it inspired feelings of skipping class. No one was allowed to live in their studios or even be in the building after midnight. 
but we were 19-year-old kids with facial piercings who thought we were going to be the next wave of neo-expressionists. All of us had foregone college and taken shit jobs just so we could focus on what mattered, the work. We thought the cubicle jockeys who had followed the path of school and jobs and marriage and children and death were no better than drones. Unlike them, we had it all figured out. Jake gave us a tour of the place, telling us which artists worked in which room, what their stuff was like, who we should know. He was doing a good job of networking, and he had plans to open his own gallery by renting a space that had living quarters in the back. A mop closet would do, he told us. My friend Don was dead in love with him, and I could see why. A stocky boy on the verge of becoming a man, he carried himself with confidence and had unshakable blue eyes. But it bummed me out that Don had once again, for maybe the third time, copied her boyfriend's style. While dating a goth boy, she'd worn makeup for the first time ever and had dyed her hair midnight blue. A punk with a mohawk had led to a mohawk of her own. And now, like Jake, she was shaving her head with a razor. The only vestige of the fiercely intelligent communist I knew from high school was the single Italian dreadlock threaded with copper that grew from the back of her prickly head. Jake led us into his studio. He was a sculptor who worked with wood, bronze, anything I can get my hands on, really, he said. On his table was a crucified figure whose almost cubist body terminated to a point just below the waist. Jake lifted the heavy sculpture by a rope connected at the limp wrist and said he planned to add a ball and chain to the bottom to give it ballast. I liked that the sculpture would hang in the center of a room, not against a wall, and that even though the posture suggested crucifixion, no crucifix was present. The pose was everything. Though I was a painter, not a sculptor, it was clear to me, to all of us, I'm sure, that Jake had more talent than I had more know-how, more connections, more assurance. It was hard not to hate him a little. Dawn had some idea of how I felt about Jake. She'd been my closest friend through my struggles with sexual identity and my estrangement from my parents. She always loved the boys with a broken wing, and I'm afraid my insecurities put her in a tough spot with Jake. She'd primed both of us as best as she could to get along, and we reluctantly did. Jake including me in tonight's festivities, when he could have been having sex with Dawn, was a gesture of friendship that I had yet to match. I complimented his work, and he shrugged as though the crucified man were no more than a sketch. Jake had also invited a sculptor he'd recently met, and it fascinated me as we shared a joint to watch him endear himself to the stranger, to transform him into a contact. He bragged about himself and took pains to make it clear that he was aware of every artist mentioned, every gallery criticized or praised, every contest on the horizon. My buddy won that contest last year, Jake said. Yeah, I gave him feedback on that piece. Don, knowing my astringent ideas about artistic purity in those days, flash me a tight grin. I might have been seconds from condemning this friendly chat as self-serving duplicity, a betrayal of the connection that art was supposed to achieve. 
Her expression told me to give him a chance, to see the capable man I was anxious to dismiss. She was too kind to insinuate that my sneering was just a shield for my pathetic resume. I could sense this, knew it deep down, so I nodded at Jake's pronouncements and laughed when I could stomach doing so. So Jake, Don interjected, tell us about the ghosts that roam these halls. For a second, Jake sucked the barbell in his tongue. He looked almost irritated at this interruption, but then he smiled, perhaps seeing how this topic gave him home court advantage. Or maybe he just liked to tell a good ghost story. Well, a few months ago, I was talking to Eric, a photographer down the hall. Beautiful, huge images he manipulates by slathering his body with developing chemicals and rolling around on the prints. Anyway, he was telling me the history of this place. He'd heard from the building manager that the school was closed because a little girl got hit by a bus out front. The nun who was supposed to be watching her allegedly went insane with grief, said she kept seeing the little girl playing in the hallways, hearing her. She died of a heart attack just a few weeks later, they say. And then on the last day the school was open, a priest hanged himself in one of the upper rooms, no one knows why. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but I won't lie to you. I don't recommend going to the top floor. It's creepy as hell up there. Portishead played quietly on Jake's stereo, and incense smoke rose and flickered in the breeze of a fan. With that said, Jake said with a grin, do you guys still want to drop acid? I might have forgotten to mention the whole point of us spending the night in the repurposed Catholic school was to do LSD. It had seemed like such a good idea when we'd thought of it the day before. I for sure shit don't believe in ghosts, the other sculptor said. Hit me. Jake cut off a square of blotter paper with an exacto knife and another one for himself. Don took a hit, too. It would have been awkward not to join in at that point. If you've ever been around drunk people when you're sober, you understand how annoying they can be. Psychedelic drugs, I knew, only amplified that tedium by a thousand. Better to go along for the ride, I thought. Or maybe I didn't think. Maybe I just placed the tab on my tongue. Despite the effects of the acid, the two sculptors were still praising their own portfolios an hour later. Even Dawn had grown bored of their parallel monologues, and she agreed to explore the school with me. Let's see if we can find those ghosts, I said. Dawn and I had already lived in one haunted house together. Doors slammed inexplicably, and things relocated themselves from room to room on a nearly daily basis. We consulted a close friend of mine, Lindsay, an Ojibwe woman in her 40s who read auras, and she sent us home with sage to burn and salt to draw a circle around the property. With great respect, we'd asked the spirit to leave the house, and we believed ourselves successful when, for a moment, every light in my bedroom got brighter. The fact that we were always stoned in those days didn't seem particularly relevant. 
We believed we had escaped the world of manufactured minds and tapped into what Don called the impossible, a place beyond the limits of conventional thought. I myself had pretended to my Ojibwe friend that I too could see auras, not because I wanted to mock or appropriate her beliefs, but because I thought, in a way, I could. As we might always associate the color purple with the artist formerly known as Prince, I found it easy to associate colors with anyone's personality. I would ask Lindsay if she also saw orange around dawn, and she would say, Yes, I see it too. Orange is a color of transition. I repeated this trick with half a dozen people, and Lindsay, who sometimes called me her son, said I had the gift. Exploring for ghosts while on acid didn't seem nuts to me. I had been raised Presbyterian. I was taught God parted the Red Sea for Moses and Jesus rose from the dead. The saved souls of the faithful would know life everlasting and queers like me would burn in hell. Charging into a haunted school with a head full of drugs was a chance to discover what was true. In those days, I had real faith in the universe. This poorly defined intelligence would look out for me, so long as I followed my heart and never denied who I was. At least this is what I told myself over and over as I passed through the narrow halls, flicking my lighter to see. The bifurcated stairwell of the school rose in a single flight that split into two wings that pressed against the marble walls and then returned to a single flight again. Such architectural marvels transfixed us as we sat on a landing, gawking at the electric blue streetlight rushing through the windows. We welcomed the spirits to come, told them they had nothing to fear. In time, I saw the little girl skipping down one of the staircases. Translucent, illuminated from within, she passed across the landing, just feet from us, and then climbed the opposite set of stairs. Round and round she went, the nun, dressed in white, moved much more slowly, her fingertips tracing the gleaming cherry balustrade as serene as the Mother Mary. I asked Dawn if she could see them, and she said where, and I said there, and she said yes. We held each other. We told each other how beautiful it was. When the nun and the girl had gone away, we ventured up another flight of stairs. As we climbed higher and the school got darker, we could feel a presence, an anger radiating from above. It stopped us like a fist at the top of the stairs. The upper floor was not available to the artist, and in the unsteady fire of our lighters, we could see piles of dusty lumber and furniture strewn about as though a huge animal had run wild up here. The long, dark hallway that receded before us vibrated like a scream. Without exchanging a word, Don and I headed back from where we came. Jake and his new contact didn't believe us. From their smoky perch at Jake's work table, they said we were just tripping, suggestible, putting them on. Don't even try to fuck my head, man. Jake said, laughing. But don't you want to see the truth for yourself? I said. Whose truth? 
Mine or yours? Don gulped Jake's orange juice straight from the carton. There's only one truth, I said. No, brother, the contact said, wiping sawdust from his forearms. No, no, no. Seriously, dude, enough with the ghost talk, Jake said. I have to sleep here. Jake turned up his stereo a little, some electronica I hadn't heard before, and began to dance. Bad vibes be gone, be gone, he said, shaking out his hands. The new contact bobbed his head to the beat, and Dawn continued to guzzle the OJ. It was clear to me, even in my euphoria, that disturbing anyone's reality while on mind-bending drugs was a shitty thing to do. I took comfort that the guys were no longer talking about their careers and were now laughing together as though they were genuine friends. I listened to the rhythm of the unfamiliar music and did my best to join them in the dance. Four years later, confident in my lack of talent as a painter, I went to school to get a degree in psychology. I learned about the remarkable plasticity of the human brain, how restricted blood flow can cause a person to smell pineapples that aren't there. One railroad spike through the frontal lobe can transform a kind man into a profane, self-serving creep. A short series of images can make us more or less liberal, more or less conservative. Our personalities are so dependent upon our biochemistry, climate, life experience, education, relationship to authority, and how much we've slept, that it became difficult for me, upon graduation, to believe in an everlasting soul. All language and coherent identity can be erased in a living brain, not to mention a dead one. The ghosts I saw were much more likely hallucinations produced by a motivated and chemically manipulated mind. I might not have had the talent or charisma to schmooze my way into the art world, but I'd always been adept in the land of make-believe. It makes sense that's where I invested my worth that night. If while listening to my story you dismissed any chance that I saw a real ghost once I'd mentioned LSD, I can't blame you. Hallucinations are possible. And though I still believe we have no right to our own facts, I've come to accept that there are no boundaries on the ways in which we construct meaning. America, now in 2020, is cleaved into two competing worldviews. One half sees police brutality, while the other sees peacekeepers with a difficult job. Destructive anarchists get conflated with conscientious protesters, and hardly any of us are willing to compromise on our interpretations. We're all seeing what we're primed to see. According to the world population clock, there are currently over 7.8 billion people on the planet. That's nothing compared to the 100 billion people that the Population Reference Bureau estimates to have died in human history. For every living person on Earth, there are 12 corpses slowly becoming fossil fuels or dissolving in the water or floating on the wind. Some people believe these souls continue on. Who am I to contest them? Ghosts could be in the room with you now, standing behind you, breathing on your shoulder. Listen.
the streets of Soho in the rain. He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Books. Andrew Watson was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. At the age of 18, he moved to Denver, Colorado without a plan. He now has an MFA from Pacific University and lives in Portland, Oregon with his partner and their dog, Mason. Mason, unlike Andrew, very much believes in ghosts. Andrew is currently shopping around two novels, an AIDS drama and a story about a former animal rights activist suffering from post-traumatic and secondary stress disorder. If you're interested, you can reach him at buoyantly at gmail.com. And that's it for our little Halloween show. Low Orbit is produced and edited by me, Josh Madison. You can find us on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or email us at denverorbit at gmail.com. Links to all of this will be in the show notes. I'd love to hear your ideas, read your writing, listen to your weird thing, or, or I don't know, just have a cup of coffee if that's what you want. Don't hesitate to reach out. And we will have a new episode for you very soon. Very soon.